Hi, how are you getting on? Dan O'Neill here. Welcome to the Sip2 College podcast. We have an excellent show lined up for you today, so please stay tuned. We are incredibly privileged to welcome James Bloodworth onto the show today. James is an English journalist and writer. He has written two highly acclaimed books. One of them is called The Myth of Meritocracy, Why Working Class Kids Get Working Class Jobs. And he's written another book called Hired, Six Months Undercover in Low Wage Britain. And the premise of the book is James worked in various jobs over the space of a year or so. He worked for Amazon, he worked for Uber, and in the book he outlines his experience working in those companies. Now you might be familiar with James, he writes for a number of newspapers, he's been on the BBC countless times. But in this episode he talks to us about precarious work. He talks about how trade unions can use technology to organise and he talks about the importance of education and learning in terms of fighting populism and also reskilling people in a changing economy. James has also worked closely with Bernie Sanders. He's an incredible voice for change. Sometimes he courts controversy on the left, um, but that makes him all the more interesting. And in this episode, Paddy Cole, who's an excellent activist, he's a campaigner in SIP2 um, and in SIP2 Health. He has a great track record in defending and standing up for workers. He interviews James and they talk about the various issues affecting working people today. So listen in, it's well worth your time. Before that, I got up with Aira Gallagher, learning coordinator with SIP2 College, to talk about trade union education. Hi, Era. So I believe um, you got some good news. Hi, Dan. How are you? Yeah, today's been a really, really good day for me um, as a learning coordinator here in SIP2 College. Today I got results that gives me a first class honours degree in sociology and politics from NUIG. Congratulations. And what was your thesis on? Oh, my thesis was on um, trade union education and whether... Um, participation in trade union education encourages uh, critical thinking and it was based around a program that we run here out of the college the educate to organize program so it was really really exciting for me okay and how did you start your journey in education how did you end up doing a, getting the first uh, in, in 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 your master's degree well it's been a long road down but um, my my second chance at education actually started here in sip2 college uh, perhaps back in the year 2000 when I was a shop steward in Magna Donnelly in Nice and I got the opportunity to participate in the trade union studies program that was being run out of the college here at that time and incidentally we still run that that program today it's a level six program and I completed that under the tutelage of two fantastic tutors Francis Devine and Norman Croke and when I had finished that Francis encouraged me to go on to participate in the BBS um, bachelor's degree in UCD and I undertook that which was a huge step um, I was in my 40s when I went back to do that so I suppose the lesson from this is it's never too late to, to go back to education. And what would you say to people out there who are listening and They've thought about education, they thought it might be something they'd be interested in, but they haven't plucked up the courage to get stuck into it yet. What would you say? Oh, I'd say now is the time. Just 
do it, grab it by the scruff of the neck and, and go for it. And particularly in an environment like we have here at SIP2 College, this is a trade union college and we've got a trade union ethos here, which is one of participation and engagement and, and learning through the group participation that, that we have. So we learn from each other in the class. Um, so this is the place to come to start that journey and you will get all the support and encouragement you need to, to take that first step when you come through the doors of SIP2 College. Later on in the podcast, James Bloodworth talks about how important trade union education is in terms of fighting right-wing populism and um, getting workers to think more critically and so on. And your thesis was on that kind of topic. So what were your findings? Oh, it was really interesting, Dan, that, that um, participation in political education, uh, particularly delivered through the trade union, really raises that level of critical consciousness um, amongst participants. And I conducted the, um, the research through um, surveys and through interviews, and the majority of the, the participants that, that responded showed a real raise in their development of critical thinking and critical analysis. Do you think people in general at the moment think critically when they watch the news or they they look at the journal.ie and see the latest article? What, what, what way do people approach the news and, and information I, in general? Yeah, I, and I don't think that, that in general we do think critically enough. Um, I think that, that our minds are very closed and, uh, you know, I heard it said on the TV last night, if it's in the newspaper, it must be true. But I think for, for those of us um, who are critical about what is going on in our society and globally, you know, we, re- we really need to, to raise the game in relation to that. And we need to ask the questions and see the story that is there behind the headline. We need to ask the questions, ask the difficult questions and see the alternatives that are there. And I think participation in trade union education is the real avenue into that, to opening up our minds to be able to critically evaluate the information that is out there. So where do people go if they want to find out about doing a course with SIP2 College? Well, the best place to go, Dan, is to the SIP2 College website, um, www.sip2college.ie, or you'll find us on Facebook, and you'll find all the information in relation to it there. And I would just say to people, it is never too late to start on that journey. I came back to Second Chance Education, and I am absolutely thrilled today to, to be the proud owner Um, of a first-class master's degree and if I can do it anybody can do it. James thanks very much for sitting down with us for the Sipty College podcast. Um, Can we start off by talking about your book Hired and about the thought process behind writing a book on precarious work and then going out into the world of um, that so many of our members experience um, in the gig economy and in precarious work. So the end of 2015, uh, I remember I was thinking about a new idea for a book. There were, back in Britain, there were lots of kind of positive employment statistics at the time. I mean, David Cameron was prime minister, it seems like a million years ago now. But the government, his government was trumpeting this idea that Britain was well on the road to recovery after a long recession. There were a record number of people in, in work. There was lots of, were lots of jobs being created. Uh, but behind that, there was, you know, the, th- those were the numbers, but behind that, the reality was quite different. So there'd been a massive rise in the number of people on zero hours contracts, um, uh, the rise of the so-called gig economy. So typically people working without some of the, the, 
the workplace rights that they would have received in the past. Um, so I actually wanted to, to, to look at um, the reality behind the numbers, so, so so what sorts of jobs are being created and was this work fulfilling in the same way that some certain jobs in the past um, gave someone a sense of dignity and self-respect. Um, and so I thought, you know, I, I wanted to write about it and it seemed like a, a way to do that, a way to really kind of uh, do a sort of belly-to-earth style of reporting um, would be to actually immerse myself in that part of the economy for a set period of time in different parts of the country and just try and tell the stories tell my story of, of, of doing that but but more importantly to tell the stories of the other people who work in those in those industries you know will you talk to me a little bit about the uh, the Amazon factory and like working there in what's called they call a fulfillment center it's it, it's quite an ironic um, uh, way of describing the the work that goes on there will you talk to me about your experiences in Amazon sure so Amazon was the first place I got a job um, I didn't deliberately um, set out to work at Amazon. It was just that I was looking around for, for work and um, all in all parts of the country, and I noticed that Amazon was recruiting through an, through an employment agency in the West Midlands. Um, and it was in a former Collier town, like a small place called Rugeley. I'd never heard of this place before. Um, small Staff Staffordshire town. And I got this, yeah, so I, I put in an application with Amazon, uh, well, with Transline, the agency that was recruiting for Amazon, and then kind of a week later I got a call in for an induction, and then a week later I started my first shift in this in this warehouse. Um, the job itself, I mean, I'd worked in warehouses before when I was younger. I'd, I'd worked in like a yogurt factory for a long time. I'd done kind of manual jobs. I worked in a Royal Mail kind of, uh, I was a postman, but also in the sorting office for three years. and. My experience at Amazon, I mean, it was really eye-opening. I was worried when I set out to write the book that it would be, that it, there was a danger the book would be kind of boring, that I'd go into these workplaces and, and nothing would really happen and it'd be quite mundane for the reader. And I was worried that um, I'd struggle to kind of um, bring life to the book. But, but the, I mean, the opposite was true. I was, when I got to Amazon, I was really like shocked by some of the stuff that was going on there. Um, and I'd been kind of, it had been 10 years since I'd done that kind of work before. So I went to university, mature student at 23 in 2006. And then 10 years later, I'm going back, um, like after a long recession. So things had changed somewhat. Um, but there was a huge erosion of, of like workplace rights in the Amazon warehouse, for example, compared to what I'd been used to before. So the first, the, the most obvious thing was if you took a day off sick in the warehouse, you'd receive a disciplinary for it regardless of whether you had a doctor's note, regardless of if you phoned in beforehand to tell them you were going to be sick. Um, and I'd never experienced anything like that before. Um, every time you went to, you let you finish the shift or you went to the toilet, you'd have to go through airport-style security checks, so through the scanners, emptying all your pockets, taking your watch and stuff off, just to go to the toilet. Um, and also the productivity targets were like, really, really high. So I consider myself quite a fit and healthy person to go to the gym. Uh, I was told the first week that I was, I was in the bottom 10% of the productivity uh, targets and if I don't get my productivity rates up I'll receive a disciplinary for that as well. Um, going to the toilet took 5-10 minutes because you have to go through security, this huge warehouse the size of 10 football pitches, two toilets on the ground floor, can take you 5-10 minutes to reach the toilet and then come back. You can walk a quarter of a mile from one side of the warehouse to the other just to use the toilet and yet people were getting disciplinaries for so-called idle time, which was really just five minutes spent going to the toilet. And it was such a climate of fear around that that 
Um, one day when I was working in the warehouse, there was a, literally a Coke bottle that someone had urinated in on the shelf, uh, on one of the shelves in, in the warehouse. And I saw that and it was a case of, you know, first of all, like, like, whoa, like, why is that there? Then immediately it's like, oh, of course, someone's done that because, you know, there's the point system is you get six points and you lose your job, disciplinary points. And someone could be on, you know, five points and they're afraid to go to the toilet because they'll be pulled up on it for so-called idle time. And so they've, they've done this in a Coke bottle. And, it, and a group called Organise did a recent survey of, of Amazon warehouses in England, and they found that 74% of Amazon warehouse workers were afraid to go to the toilet because of missing productivity targets. So, I mean, there was just a climate of fear hanging over the whole uh, environment at Amazon. And do you think as a society and as consumers, you know, you hear these stories about Amazon, you hear these stories about lots of these big, massive multinationals that um, have really grown through the, the tech boom. What do you think we should do as consumers with this? Do we boycott Amazon? Do we, you know, what would you, what would you think would be the best way to kind of uh, stop this from happening? I mean, I think look, there's, a, there's a role for consumer activism. Um, I think, you know, if you can afford to shop ethically, you should always try and do so. Same with you know fair trade. If you see two bunches of bananas or something, one has the fair trade sticker and one doesn't. Um, I think like I would encourage people to spend a little bit more um, to, to to worry about the supply chain, um, to to take an interest in that. And I think that's especially true when this is right under your nose in the country you're living in. So the Amazon warehouse down, you know, in Rugeley or something, you have people in the town presumably still using Amazon to order stuff. And it, you may think it's you know no concern of yours if this is going on in the warehouse, but those that once you that precarious kind of model of employment takes hold, it spreads. So same with Uber delivery; these companies, it's not just the person delivering your pizza or or you know taking you home after you've had a few drinks or whatever. It's not just their terms and conditions that are impacted by this because this stuff is spreading. So I mean, even in journalism, you know, like my own profession, um, precarious kind of employment conditions have spread to this industry now it's not just like you know traditional working class jobs it's spreading so you have to nip it in the bud um before it does so that's why i say you know you can't just think of yourself as a consumer because you know all of us go to work as well um and so you have to look at the whole kind of supply chain i'd say though that the bigger kind of change will come in terms of you know trade unions i think um so there's only so much consumer activism can actually change within an Amazon warehouse. What we need to do is, um, I mean, in, in both Britain and Ireland, is you need to have governments which take a more proactive approach to change, to change the law, to, to, to make it easier to, for trade unions to get into some of these workplaces, to actually organise people, especially when you have a high uh, migrant labour force, which is what was true at Amazon. Most of the people I worked with were like Romanian workers. So there's a huge turnover of staff. It's harder very often to get those people to join a trade union because they're not planning to stay in the country for long. So then you would think, you know, from the government's point of view, a Labour government's point of view, you'd want to bring down the threshold for trade union membership. So at the moment it's 10% in Britain to, for the company to have to recognise a union. I would argue that in, in industries with a uh, highly transitory workforce, where there's a, lots of coming and going, that should be lower. Um, perhaps lower across the board. But trade unions and organisation are the way you kind of keep a check on this stuff within a workplace. You always have those, um, you have those outlets for discontent and you have those outlets through which working people can come together in like the Amazon warehouse or whatever, the, care, the social care sector, can come together and actually like stand up for themselves because you have to do that together. You can't just do it as, as one, one worker. 
Right, and you kind of touched on it there. It was going to be uh, something I was going to move on to, but the, the role of the trade union movement um, in trying to combat this growing kind of gig economy. What, where do you see um, the trade unions' role in all of this? I mean, trade unions, there's, there's a school of thought um, that's kind of been in the ascendancy over the last, say, 30 years, since the rise of kind of Margaret Thatcher in Britain, Ronald Reagan in the States, that, that, that would like to pretend that, you know, trade unions are a throwback to the 20th century, that we don't need them anymore. And this is especially pronounced in the gig economy, what's called the gig economy. So, yeah, I drove an Uber taxi for three months. And the company kind of showers you with, like, propaganda around... Uh, you know, being your own boss, flexibility, autonomy, and th the idea is that workers' rights and things like holiday pay, sick pay, minimum wage, that's somehow a, a constriction on your freedom, that the, the right to, you know, earning a decent living, having pay when you're off sick or whatever, annual leave, for example, that that's somehow a restriction of your freedom. Um, and I think that, 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 that goes over into trade unions as well. So, I mean, in the United States, there's a, there's a propaganda campaign against trade unions persuading like care workers as we've we've heard recently that trade unions you know trying to steal some steal subs off you effectively you know like like pin put their hand in your pocket and take subs from you like surreptitiously so i think um first of all unions need to recognize that there's a i think they do for the most part there's there's a you know concerted propaganda campaign against them and there's a section of the the media there's a section of the business community that, that is completely hostile to trade unions, it still doesn't accept the, the basic premise of trade unionism, that workers should be allowed to organise against capital. Uh, trade unions themselves, I think, I think they just, I think in many respects they need to adapt to the way technology is being used to facilitate uh, work. So this doesn't apply so much to, let's say, the social care sector at the moment, and not so much Amazon, because where, that's a traditional model of trade unionism. But in, say, the gig economy where you have Uber taxis, um, heavily, again, migrant work, labour force, unions have to really up their game in terms of using tech to unionise people. And, th and the law can be changed for that as well. Like electronic balloting and stuff is something that, in Britain at least, the government's reluctant to bring in. But I would hope a Labour government would absolutely um, would use, would f use technology to facilitate trade unionism in that way. So things like electronic balloting were, bought, were brought in, but also... You know, trade unions, why aren't there trade union apps where you can kind of, you get information, you can, maybe there are, but it's not something that I feel is particularly prominent where you can you can organise much easier through like your smartphone, just like you accept like Uber jobs or something through your smartphone. Okay. Um, we do actually have a sip to health app that I'm going to get you to download straight after this. Okay, uh, that's, that's good to hear actually. Because we're, we're, what we're trying to do in SIPTU is we're trying to go on that um, digital organising model where we're trying to you know, use WhatsApp groups to be able to connect with shop stewards directly, to connect with district councils directly and um, also apps, people get notifications if we have a ballot going on or if we have a press release that's going on. So it's, instantaneous and it's on and it's on um, people's smartphones so it's something that we are quite conscious of but it's not something that you know the trade union movement is actually on top of because when you say propaganda on the opposite side of the house on like with the big business constantly dumbing us down constantly saying that we're you know putting our hands in your pockets and taking money what a trade union is relevant for there's a major major propaganda campaign against um, trade unions and it's something that we have to try and organise to fight back. So in Sipthu College what we try and do is we try and organise workers around education. So how would you see education and 
uh, le kind of lifelong learning as being a way of trying to organise people? Do you think that uh, there's a role for trade unions to be involved in the education process? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that, that comes up in my book, or came up in my book when I was researching it, was, so I, it, it started off as just a book about work. So I was just going to write, just going to go into these workplaces, write about the experience, write about how it was to live off that money, etc. But then half the book, when it was actually finished, became about the towns I was living in. So it became very important as I started writing it to, to look at the context within which those jobs were happening. So you have an Amazon warehouse, and so in this town called Rugeley, so it was a case of, okay, like what was there before it? Amazon's the biggest employer in town, but you know, 20 years ago, what was the biggest employer in town? It was the colliery. And the change in that kind of transition was interesting because then you had, you'd also, when you lost the colliery, you hadn't just lost the mining jobs, you'd also lost the trade union that was with it. You'd lost the institutional affiliations uh, that went with some of those, you know, with the mining jobs, the steelworks, the, the power stations. And with the, the loss of the trade unions, the loss of the social clubs, the loss of, again, workers' educational, lifelong learning, like, th like philosophies, so that you could, you know, you could, you could, you could work out down the pit, but you, could, you also, there were also avenues open for, even at the social club, for you to learn a language, for you to go to dance classes, for you to actually, later on, to, to take lessons in how to use a computer. And you could see how that could be, and it was in some areas, you could see how that could be extended to, to, to facilitate greater learning for, for working people. But with the loss of the industrial jobs, you lost that kind of, that like a culture was destroyed as well with it. And I think the, one of the jobs of the trade union movement is obviously to, to halt the decline, because in, in Britain at least, the, the decline in trade union membership is halved since 1979. But it's also to bring back that kind of culture of socialism. So as a kind of working person, we need to, we need to give working people back those those kind of levers to it to kind of first of all interpret the world interpret capitalism interpret why uh, in your town or whatever the factory's closed in your town why it's changed so radically in the last 30 40 years but then also through the trade union movement give them the kind of aisles of democracy through which they can exert an influence on the world because if you don't if people don't have that if you just feel like you have no control over your economic destiny it makes it very easy then for like a demagogic politician, like a Donald Trump figure or a Nigel Farage with a, with a Brexit campaign, to come in and then, you know, point at the migrants, point at the people on social security, and say that it's all their fault. Why, you know, if we just uh, change this in Britain, if we just leave the European Union, if we just go back to the 1950s, this kind of imperial nostalgia, if we just do this, then everything will be fine. But if the socialist movement is not there, trade unions aren't there to educate people in terms of what who their real antagonists are, I suppose, and what their real grievances are. You know, it's not the, the Polish plumber why, you're, why you have no terms and conditions anymore at work, why you're not allowed a toilet break. It's, there's, it's, it's capital. And the trade union movement absolutely has to um, revitalise itself to, to, to deal with the, the workplace grievances, but also to give that kind of worldview of, and explain to people what's going on. Because otherwise, yeah, as I said, it makes it very easy for autocratic figures to come in and then you know, give kind of very simplistic, often brutal and nasty solutions. Um, but it also, yeah, you see the rise of conspiracy theories and stuff. So this is a problem particularly on the left in Britain where you have a lot more kind of conspiratorial thinking now. So 
it's not capitalism, but it's the kind of the bad people behind the scenes pulling the pulling the strings or whatever, and and that leads to anti-Semitism and all this kind of other stuff that um, the left should be absolutely standing against. Yeah, I totally agree. And uh, on the other side of uh, of that coin, from demagogue, demagogues and and, and despots, uh, there's Bernie Sanders. And I noticed recently that you've done a bit of work with Bernie. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. So. Uh, about six weeks ago, I guess it was, Bernie Sanders like reached out to me about the stuff I've been, the work I've been doing with Amazon, uh, because they wanted to run a campaign basically in the in the states, highlighting um, the the problems with Amazon essentially, from everything everything from the kind of the, the the rate of the wages it was, the level of the wages it was paying workers to some of the the terms and conditions in the warehouses. Um, and so Bernie, yeah, Bernie Sanders and his team reached out to me and we shot a series of videos, short videos, where I talked through my experiences working at Amazon. And it re they really took off. I mean, it wasn't just me doing that. So, so I did three videos and then from that, we used that as a platform to then reach out to other Amazon workers to come forward. And then, then they did some videos as well on their experiences working for Amazon. Um, and it's, it, it really kind of took off and, and it really helped the campaign to highlight some of the things going on in Amazon uh, warehouses. It really blew that up because, I mean, two years, say like, like two years ago before the book, Amazon's image was, was quite positive. Jeff Bezos was seen as kind of, you know, this clean cut kind of entrepreneur, hardworking entrepreneur. Everyone loved Amazon. It was something everyone found convenient. Um, it wasn't like an Uber or something which had this really brash CEO who was very confrontational from the start. But I think, not just because of my book at all, but I think my book has been part of the kind of wave of, of like the backlash against this. And Bernie Sanders picked up the GMB union in, in Britain has been doing, been kind of uh, doing great work on Amazon for several years now, but it's been found very difficult because the conditions for trade unions in Britain aren't, aren't ideal. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the Bernie Sanders thing was kind of the final kind of the coup de grace, if you like, in terms of Jeff Bezos actually sitting up and responding. Because we've seen in the last three weeks, he's first of all donated, I think, or pledged two billion for a like, philanthropy fund. Um, this, in my view, is is a public relations exercise, but it shows that it's having an impact. And then last week, you had uh, he's pledged to pay uh, workers, you know, higher wages in in the United States and the United Kingdom. So. The argument that they don't have the money to pay people is he's kind of rubbish that by, by promising this. But it shows shows we've rattled them and it shows that, you know, collective action, you can actually get the richest man in the world who's the head of the largest multinational in the world. You can still, you know, trade unions, activism, uh, campaigns, you can actually make them cave in because they care about their image. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed listening to that interview as much as I did. Really, really insightful stuff. So thank you very, very much to Paddy Cole and James Bloodworth for providing that piece of audio for this podcast. I truly recommend you uh, read the book Hired Six Months Undercover in Low Age Britain by James Bloodworth. SIP2 College runs reading circles and that's one of the books we're going to be looking at. Um, and thank you to James Bloodworth and the SIP2 Health Division for um, presenting SIP2 College with a number of copies of the book. So thanks everybody for listening in today. It's been great to have your company. And if you want to do us a favour, you might share this podcast with your friends and rate us on, on the podcast charts and leave us a nice review. And if you're interested in doing a course in SIP2 College, 
Pop along to the SIP2 College website, www.sip2college.ie, or speak to your industrial organiser and they'll tell you all about the courses that are available here in SIP2 College. And we hope to see you here really, really soon to start your journey back to education.